welcome to the Perfume Making Podcast with me, Karen Gilbert. And on today's episode, I'm going to be talking to senior perfumer and creative entrepreneur, Scott Morishan. We'll be talking all about his journey to becoming a perfumer over 25 years ago, his passion and his process for creating emotionally connected fragrances, his philosophy for living a creative life, and his brand new book called More Than a Nice Scent. So hi, Scott, and welcome to the Perfume Making Podcast. So lovely of you to join me. So for everybody listening out there, um, today we are speaking to professional perfumer of 25 years experience, Scott Morishan. So Scott, would you like to just give us a quick intro, um, you know, how, you know, about you, where people can find you and a little, just a little snippet about your background, really? Well, thanks, Karen. Um, yeah, just a little bit about me. I'm Scott Morochan. I'm an American perfumer, but I've been living and working in Europe and the, also in the United Kingdom for like the last 25 years. Um, I started off working as a chemist in the United States, and it wasn't really the career that I dreamt of. My parents kind of pushed me into this direction, and I like to kind of followed what their wishes. But in the end, um, I realized that I wanted to do something more creative. And to make a long story short, um, yeah, one day I had the realization that I should become a perfumer, which everyone at the time thought I was completely crazy because no one even knew what a perfumer was. But I was really inspired to, to make perfumes that would make other people's lives more enjoyable. And through this dream, one thing led to another, and eventually I ended up uh, moving to Germany when I was 28 years old to train as a professional perfumer, which took a little over four years. And then um, I've had lots of ups and downs in my life. Um, yeah, I actually destroyed my, my, my dream by quitting my dream job <laughs> and because I fell in love with a woman who was living in England. I moved to England. And for quite some time, I was actually outside of the industry and eventually got my foot back in the door working for the client side. And I consulted for the, the body shop for a little while. Um, I also worked for a big company called Reckitt and Ben Kieser, developing, uh, helping them to develop their fragrances for uh, household products like scented candles and surface cleaners. And yeah, step by step, I was able to, to gain my place back in the industry as a perfumer, which led me back to Germany. And since then, I've been working here in Germany now for about 16, 17 years, I think. And also in my free time, I'm also a visual artist. And I've just begun a new project of writing my first book called uh, more than a nice scent, a perfumer's perspective on emotional fragrance design. Fab. So there's a lot to talk about in there. And um, firstly, my I guess my first question, um, I'd, I'd really like to just go back quickly to when you first started and you decided that I want to become a perfumer. What was that spark that that made you decide to do that? So you, when you were a chemist before, it was it just to do with the fact that the role that you were in wasn't it wasn't very it wasn't creative enough or was there something else and how did you how did you start your training did you apply to a school or did you join a company that's a good question 
Um, yeah, to try to be concise about it. Um, basically, I was an environmental chemist doing uh, yeah, analytical chemistry, which is very, in my, it has a, it's a, a noble profession, but it's quite boring because as a creative person at heart, I was expected to follow protocol step by step by step with no deviation at all. And the the end results of my daily work was numbers on paper. Yeah. And I found this very difficult to accept because when I would meet new people and they would ask me, oh, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, I'm an analytical chemist. And I tried to explain my work to them, but they had very little understanding of it. And at that time, I was working for a large laboratory and we had over 200 employees. And a lot of times people would bring in their old magazines to the to the cantina. And I'd sit in, the, in my lunch breaks with my colleagues and often we'd flip through these magazines and people would bring in magazines like Elle and Vogue and things like this. And after a while, after a few years of flipping through these pages, I started thinking, oh, this fashion industry is the complete polar opposite of what I'm doing here. <laughs> and that started to get the wheels turning in my head. And for a long time, I was like, well, I want to do something with fashion, but I'm not quite sure how, because I knew nothing about uh, designing clothes. I had no background in photography. And eventually, um, it didn't come at straight away, but eventually I thought, oh, perfume. And actually, when I thought this, it was just like a cartoon where the, the light bulb goes off in your head. And I was like, in that second, absolutely possessed. And straight after the work, I went straight to the university library and started looking for information about fragrances and perfume. And I also um, started buying essential oils and built up a small collection, started mixing things together myself. But the real turning point was uh, during my research, I came across uh, an advertisement for the World Perfumery Congress, which at that time was going to be held at Scottsdale, Arizona. And at that time, I was living in Colorado, and it wasn't very far away. So when I read the, the advertisement, advertisement for this uh, this Congress, it said something like experts from every aspect of the fragrance industry will be attending the World Perfumery Congress. And when I read that, I knew this is my only chance to because get I knew no one. I had no connections. And so basically that was my end. I went to the to the World Perfumery Congress and I was very lucky to meet a lot of people at the Congress. And one thing led to another. And that's how I actually received the the offer to to do my apprenticeship as a perfumer. Right. So you went into a company and did an apprenticeship. Yes. There. That company today is known as Simrise, but at that oh, time I know it Simrise, was yeah. yeah, at that time it was Harman Reimer. So this was back in 1996. Oh wow, that was 96 yeah. so 96 that you 95 96, yes. So yeah. I was um I I was at London College of Fashion in the early 90s and I ended up training as a makeup artist and then doing um, a cosmetic science diploma. And I actually ended up doing a work placement for IFF and in in the um, sort of applications lab. That was in about 94. 
Okay. So, uh, yeah, so that was that. So it was similar so time. It start at the same time, yeah. How funny is that? Yeah. So I ended yeah. up working for IFF um, as an evaluator in their Hammersmith office um, between 94 and 99 before I went, went to Neil's Yard. So and a lot of people from the body shop, you said you worked, you worked on a lot of fragrances. I consulted the with shop. them, yes. Oh, you consulted. So a lot of um, people who used to work from the body shop ended up going to work for Neil's Yard as well. So there's okay. like a really interesting yeah. little connection there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did the consultancy around the um, shortly after the millennium. I think about two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah, yeah. So I was at yeah, I was at Neil's Yard from ninety nine till about two thousand and four. Right. So yeah, it's always so interesting to meet people for who've come into different aspects of the industry and see the little threads of connection. So um, that's that's amazing that you you stepped into that via you know analytical chemistry and yeah that. Never saw it coming. It was never, never going to be. It wasn't a childhood dream. But like I said, when I when I had the, the very first thought, oh, I should be a perfumer, not even knowing what a perfumer really was. It was I was actually like really possessed. And I did really everything in my means to to gain knowledge, yeah, ba- mainly through reading books. Um, and at that time, there was no internet. So even that yeah, was quite difficult. And then I came across a few scientific journals, uh, marketing journals, uh, sensory um, journals at the university. And this yeah, was my introduction to the whole industry. So, yeah, basically, I was the first person in my family to go to university and, yeah, and definitely had zero connections with the, the industry itself. So it's kind of a, well, at least at that time, it was a small miracle that it actually worked out. And you've been in in the industry for all this time. And I, you know, just for the um, benefit of people listening, we kind of connected really recently on LinkedIn, actually, which is a place I very rarely go. But one of the things that struck me about the kind of information that you were posting on LinkedIn is one, and people who have been listening to me and reading my emails for a while will know my obsession with scent and well-being and the power our sense of smell has, which you know, I think is so underrated in a lot of the time that it can create sense, can just create such a sense of well-being. I mean, we, you know, they can lift your mood, they can energize, they can, you know, sense make you feel something and they can change your mood in an instant. And a lot of the stuff that you were posting on LinkedIn about creating emotional sense really resonated with me. That was the first thing. The second thing that really resonated when I delved into having a look at your website was that actually, as you've sort of alluded to just now, you're not just a perfumer. Um, I mean, I say just, (laughs) that's a big enough um, creative endeavor in its own right. But you also have a, a, a different perspective, I think, from a lot of possibly people who are just working in the industry for a fragrance house is that you have an angle and a, and a, a passion for creative entrepreneurship as well, which I think is really interesting. And I think that will be, that is very inspiring um, for my audience. And also you're a visual artist. So you're combining the scent angle and then the visual angle. And then also the third thing that really struck me as well was that you're writing a perfume book and now everybody loves a perfume book. And I know people listening to here, to this podcast 
really want to learn as much as they can about perfume making, perfumery, the industry, how scent can affect us. So I would love it if you could just, first of all, um, give us a little bit of info about the book and when it's, I know you've, you have, you've only just started the process when that will be coming out. And there's a slightly different angle that I know that you're taking that probably links into the, um, the creativity aspect is that you are writing this book publicly and openly with, you know, from start to finish. Could you just explain a little bit about that process and tell us a little bit more about the book for a start? Yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah, like you mentioned, yeah, I am a perfumer, but I consider myself more than being a perfumer because I don't identify, I don't want to identify with one profession because if you, without going back um, in history, though I had ups and downs throughout my career and there was a short period where I was not working as a perfumer. And that was a very difficult time for me because I felt like I had lost my identity. But through the through time, I realized that, hey, I'm not a profession. And so I consider myself to be a creative. And being a creative is the ultimate freedom, no matter at what level you're at. Because for me, creativity is the freedom to create what I want, when I want, for whom I want, the way I want. And it doesn't matter if I'm, okay, I'm employed as a, as a perfumer, but if I want to, to make a creation that I'm inspired by, I make it. If I want to make uh, a new visual art piece, I make what I want to make. And through this evolution of finding my way as a creative, I've come up with a creative life framework. And I've been inspired by many other people. So maybe some people will see some similarities to other people's um, ideas. But basically, it starts off with a concept, what I call power up. And power up is all about um, learning to recognize where you're at and where you want to go. And yeah, evaluating what skills and knowledge that are lacking to get you from where you're at and where you want to go. And so by acquiring these skills and knowledge, you're basically powering up. And then the second point is um, make cool things every day. So cool things could be a perfume, it could be a piece of art, it could be writing a poem, it could be writing a book. But cool things are not just those. Cool things are also things which support those things. So it could be, um, yeah, promoting your work, things like this, which leads me to the to the next thing is uh, play out loud. And play out loud is a very critical step in this framework because it's all about letting the world know what you're doing. And because if you just hold your creativity for yourself, um, yeah, you're not going to get discovered. People aren't going to see the beauty and your uniqueness and your individual approach to creativity. And the next part is uh, do good. And so I believe that we should use our creativity to make the world a better place. So one way I do this is um, by making charitable donations to save the children through the my the work that I sell. So if I sell 
um, a woodblock print, I give at least 15% of that to save the children and have other projects where I give 50% and have other projects where I give 100%. And the last part of the framework is Thrive. And Thrive is all about living a life worth living and seeking new opportunities, living a full life, not just a creative life, a life with family and friends, living a healthy lifestyle, taking care of yourself, really enjoying life at its fullest. And going back to the book, Yes, I'm writing this in public, so I'm a big believer. Um, yeah, you don't have to have everything finished before you show it to someone. And I think this is a big thing that stops a lot of people from even starting. Um, you just have to start. It doesn't matter because the whole creative process is a is an evolution. And when you start showing other people what you're doing, what you're writing, what you're making, then you get valuable feedback and you start the process of uh, growing. Absolutely. I think that's such an important lesson for a lot of us creatives to listen to because a lot of the students that I have in my programs, you know, they might be okay about creating something for themselves or, you know, dabbling in their studios, but actually getting it to that point where they're showing it to someone else or putting it out in the public realm, there is this feeling that often we have that we have this, I suppose it's a procrastination or it's this perfectionism where we feel like we can't actually put anything out there until we've got all of our ducks in a row, until it's perfect. And for in a lot of cases, it stops people from even getting anything out there. Um, and I know that's going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this. So have you got any tips for people who are struggling with that to uh, that have helped yes. you maybe? I think on one side, yeah, my basic advice is, is simple. Just start. Just start making things every day, showing people, even if at first it's just your friends and family, but if you really want to fulfill your dream of being a creative, a perfumer or an artist, whatever, um, yeah, there's only one option. You have to show the world. And I think, yeah, perfectionism is ugly. It's, it's destructive. Nothing will ever be perfect. Um, every time I make something or I write something or create a fragrance, I could always look back with a critical eye and say, oh, I should have done this. I should have wrote that. Um, that's okay because it'll never be perfect. Um, you just have to, to start because, yeah, there's only one way and to start and show people. If you don't do this, you'll never progress. You'll never progress. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And so the book, um, what the name of the book is, can you remind us what the name of the book is? Yes. More than a nice scent, a perfumer's perspective on emotional fragrance design. Brilliant. And so people get, well, I'll put your, your, your all of your links in the show notes. Um, so pe if anybody wants to follow you, they can subscribe to your newsletter as well. You've got a newsletter. Is that going to be following the book's progress as well, the newsletter? Yeah. Every two weeks, I send out a new newsletter and I share um, with all my followers yeah, the, the rough draft of the book. 
So the whole concept, yeah, is writing in public or playing out loud. And um, I don't hold anything back. I share what I've written and, yeah, I invite people to follow me and also to to help and learn with me as I go through this process. I'm really excited about that. And I know everyone listening will be too. Um, so the other tagline on your on your LinkedIn profile, uh, creating emotional sense. Could you talk to that a little bit? And so what what how would you describe an emotional scent? Well, for me, I call it it's like emotional fragrance design. Yeah. And for me, it's a, a new approach or yeah, another way of looking at perfumery. So for me, emotional fragrance design is the art of crafting great smelling fragrances that help fulfill our deepest emotional desires. And I try to do this by creative blending fragrances that align with our stories and psyche of not only ourselves or the consumer, but the product and the brand fingerprints. So I think it's really finding the alignment of yeah, the whole package. Whereas traditional perfumery creation is mainly focused on fragrance notes, accords, and fragrance families, which is a very important part of perfumery. But it's more or less focused on the des- describing a perfume. But what's missing for me is the the link to how fragrances actually make us feel or more importantly, how we want to feel. Yeah, that's really important. And I um, that's something that I'm really, really passionate about. And, you know, I've created a whole kind of course around that as well and linked it to um, scent meditations um, and things like that. Because I think one of the one of the things actually that that strikes me is that in order to get to that place, we actually have to be able to tap into our emotions and how we're feeling as well. And so how would you, if you are creating a fragrance based on this emotional fragrance design, is that a process that you would take a client through? Or is that something that you would use if you're creating fragrances from your own brief? Um, Yeah, this is what I hope that I could do more often with more clients. And I hope that the industry as a whole will adopt more because the main motivation for my perspective on emotional fragrance design is that I've seen thousands of customer briefs where customers come to me or my company or my colleagues and ask for fragrance, let's say for a new shower gel. And They'll often say, oh, show us a woody, a fruity, a citrus, a floral fragrance. And for me, straight away, I'm recognizing that the the new product developer, the brand manager behind this, who's driving this fragrance brief, is not aware or not considering their end customer. And I think that first you need to know who the end customer is, because As we all know, um, as fragrance um, people who appreciate perfumery and fragrance, that fragrance is very powerful in eliciting emotions and and memories. And I believe that um, we all have a desire to become better people. 
And part of becoming a better person is feeling a different way than we feel now. Yeah. So if we want to feel more hope and security in our lives, um, maybe we're kind of like a, a caring person, uh, an innocent type of person. You could relate this back to the work of Jung, where he looks yeah. at different consumer archetypes or different archetypes. And as a perfumer, I'm looking for a way um, to help customers become more successful by identifying, yeah, who are their customers and what do they actually yeah, desire? What do they need, desire, and expect to become this better person than they, they are today? And so I try to look to align the yeah, the needs of the or the the archetype of the product, the brand, and the consumer with the correct fragrance notes and fragrance families. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. And that that resonates with me a lot. And I think that anybody who's listening to this podcast who've done who's in any of my programs, they will be really familiar with that because that's something that, you know, I talk about, I'm really passionate about as well. And I think sometimes I remember back to the days when I was an evaluator um, and we would get a brief in and it's exactly that. And often, and I don't know if it's, this is the, still the same in the industry where um, a customer will say, oh, I, you know, in the brief, it will be, oh, it's it's for this product and it's this colorway. It's like, it's going to be blue, you know, the, the color will be there and that will drive it. Or sometimes they'll say, oh, can we look at a, I don't know, whatever the fragrance of the moment a type is or a does that make sense so it, yeah, back in the 90s it was a oh can we look at a cool waters i mean it will be something else now it'll probably be a baccarat rouge type or a exactly. um, j'adore type are they still doing that yeah unfortunately um <laughs> yeah most of the briefs unfortunately perfumery is a very um special yeah yeah art or craft or whatever you want to call it and unfortunately, yeah, 99% of the world is not very educated about even discussing how a fragrance smells because they lack the vocabulary. Yeah. And so when someone from a company, it could even be a company like the, you know, a bigger, well-known personal care brand or a household care brand, um, these people have most of the time little or no background in perfumery. And so I've heard uh, customers from big companies say, oh, we're looking for a pretty fragrance. And you're like, okay, <laughs> pretty, what does this mean? And so, yeah, there a lot of times the most co customers are focusing on what I call like the functional aspects of perfumery. So this could be, yeah, Sometimes the fragrance families and notes, but they're more looking at like price, stability, performance. Yeah. And then, but oftentimes some customers are better and they'll consider like the, the experience aspect of the perfume, which goes more into the, yeah, the fragrance descriptors, things like this. Um, maybe a bit of a background story with some, some marketing spin, but what, 99% of the time, what's missing is the emotional aspect. What emotion do they want their customers to experience when they, they use their product, when they wear their perfume or use their shower gel or clean their home 
how do they want to make these people feel? And no one's really talking about this. And this is what I hope to do through my book. And this is why I microblog um, about three times a week on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. just about emotional fragrance design, because I hope for myself, for the company that I work for, that we'll have the opportunity to work with more customers who are interested in making their customers feel better. And I hope the industry as a whole will adopt this point of view because it's mainly driven by, yeah, what's the most popular scent at the moment or the, the functional um, attributes of the perfume, but not the emotional outcome. Yeah, that's such a shame. It is the the story. I always, you know, I talk about the story behind the fragrance is so, so important. And it's the, the story behind it or the, yeah, what, what does the customer want to feel? Or even if you're making a scent for yourself or blending something, it's like, how do you want to feel when, when you wear this or experience it? And it's going to be different depending on the end product. So how someone uses a shower gel, for example, is going to be a different feeling to someone using a body lotion or a bath oil or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm quite shocked that I've been out of the commercial industry, as it were, for many, many years. And um, I, I'm shocked that they haven't got there yet. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah, there's so much scent psychology and there's a lot of research into the psychology of scent as well. So I'm, yeah, I'm shocked that uh, it hasn't moved any faster than uh, than it has. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Like you said, there's a lot, of, there's actually a lot of uh, fundamental research or basic research and uh, sensory marketing, um, yeah. neuromarketing, um, but um, from the customer side and also from the industry side, um, very little is being publicly spoken about this topic. Um, there are some larger companies around the world who who um, are working with this topic. But um, as far as I know, and actually it's one of my ambitions, I think I'm the only one um, who's actually regularly discussing this topic and i've chosen uh, linkedin as my main platform to do so because i this is where i think i could have the the most impact within the industry yeah that's where most of the industry is hanging out for sure and um yeah fortunately for me um yeah i started uh, this micro blogging process back in january and I'm really enjoying it. It's working out well for me. I've been picking up uh, yeah, several hundred followers and it keeps uh, growing. And I could see from my analytics mm -hmm. what kind of people are following me. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of perfumers. It's a lot of fragrance evaluators and quite a few, a handful of uh, also uh, new product developers. And what I'm really, my main struggle at the moment is to bridge the gap to to get more connections with um, the brand managers of the the new products. Yeah, because ultimately it does come from the brand managers, and it, those are the people often. You know, they're the ones creating the brief, so they are the ones that really need that fragrance education. Yeah, a lot of times. Yeah, I've seen it in personal care and household. Um, 
Yeah, as a consultant or as an employee working for a fragrance company, that most of these people, um, I think in a way, they're often quite nervous to, to even really begin a discussion about fragrance because they really lack the, the basic understanding. And this is one of the objectives of my book um, is to provide people in the first section of my book, um, an overview of the fun fundamental psychological and neuromarketing um, aspects of emotional fragrance design. And then in the second uh, section of the book, I will dive more into the, the practical perfumery aspect. And I hope by sharing my ideas that um, yeah, I'll be able to, to assist people in becoming more knowledgeable about this topic. That's brilliant. When do you anticipate the uh, the book? That's a very good question. <laughs> so, so as we mentioned, I'm writing the book in public, and yeah, every two weeks I'll be um, sending out a newsletter with a chapter or two, which I've just completed as a rough draft. Great. So we and won't have to wait until the launch of the book. We can we can read no. along with yeah, the writing process. Along. That's such a genius idea. I love that. Yeah. So actually. Next week, Thursday, I'll be sending out the third newsletter because I just started, um, I announced a book um, not so long ago. And yeah, I've just sent out the second newsletter. Two weeks will be the next one. And so in each one, I'm actually sharing my rough draft. Um, so I'm not holding anything back. And yeah, I'm putting myself out there playing out loud. Brilliant. <laughs> and this is I a perfect it. example of not having to have something done to to share your ideas, get feedback, inspire other people, um, meet new people like yourself. Um, this is what it's all about. So the book is the end product. So to go back to your question, I hope to have the, the rough draft of the book completed before December, and then I'll need some more time to, to tidy up the book and yeah. have it formatted and whatnot. So I'm hoping that early 2024, the, the final book will be ready. But Brilliant. you don't have to wait for that. You <laughs> but we can read we can along. read along. We can read exactly. along. Exactly. Um, a random question thought has just popped into my head thinking about um, emotional fragrance design and the implications of, you know, humans being emotional beings and the kind of way that the world is going with the influx of AI. Like, how mm -hmm. do you think, and I, I've seen a lot of stuff pop up online um, with fragrance houses talking about using AI to create winning fragrance formulas. And I just, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your take on that. And do you think that will work or, you know, what, what are your thoughts? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I don't have the deep inside view of what other companies are doing, but I have uh, maybe a controversial point of view that through the, the understanding of psychology and my experience and using my creative intuition that I could put the pieces together to form my own concept of emotional fragrance design, which has the intention of making other people feel good, to feel better about themselves, to to help them yeah, enjoy their own self-identity. Um, where I see AI, I'm a big fan of AI, 
but I see it as a tool, but the tool should be used for good and not to manipulate people. Because my approach is, yeah, to try to use my intuition to make the best match between a fragrance family, fragrance notes with the archetype of the customer, the product and the brand. Because as a consumer, when you buy something, you have an expectation. And um, as I wrote in my last newsletter, it's a quote from Steve Jobs. We don't buy products. We buy better versions of ourselves. Yeah. And we do this either consciously or subconsciously. And so, as I mentioned, it's my intention to use my skills, knowledge, interest, and intuition to fulfill the needs, desires, and expectations of customers. Whereas I see a lot of uh, what I read in the, the marketing world, especially in the, the field of neuromarketing, there's uh, almost a manipulative um, aspect to it. And this, I don't see as a good to, to use AI or algorithms to influence or manipulate someone into um, to buying something. So I think a lot of what's going on is, yeah, really using AI and algorithms to persuade someone into buying something. And I'm all for selling good products, but the, the intention should be, yeah, to make the world a better place, to make people feel better about themselves. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I think everybody's a little bit nervous of the whole AI thing. And I think something that we've got to keep in mind, a really great point you made there is um, we need to use it for good and we use it as a tool, right? So it's not going to take the place of creatives. And I think a lot of creatives, especially with the AI art that's being generated, um, you know, we don't want it to take over from, you know, what we can create as humans. And I don't know what your perspective on that. Have you ever read um, anything by Osho? Yes. Um, one of his, uh, I can't think of the title, but one of his creative books. Yeah, he's got a book just called Creativity. So <laughs> I think I've got one here. I've got one here on freedom, but there's another one on creativity as well. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Because that is, I read that from cover to cover one day oh. and I've quoted from it a lot, actually, when I've done my sort of Q and A's and, and, and training sessions and with my group. And I think he's got, he's quite brutal with his like scolding of people not being creative. Um, but yeah, I think there is this, and, and, you know, for, I, I sort of have a, a, you know, a spiritual path edge to myself as well, that I do think that our creativity comes from, you know, it's a channeling of whatever you would like to call it, whether it's our higher self, it's divine spark, God, the universe, whatever. It is something that we as human beings have that's unique to us and that, AI or a computer program is not, it, it doesn't have that. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it doesn't at the moment, maybe it could do in the future. But, um, but yeah, I definitely think as humans, there is some divine creative spark that comes from somewhere um, that, that drives that. 
I see it in a very similar way. I think it's in our human nature to create, um, that we're here to create something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a perfume or art, but in one way or another, we're all creators. And I think this is really, for me, for personally, the my pathway to happiness is my way to feeling that I'm living a rewarding life. Um, and yeah, as far as the the AI goes, yes, I see it as a as a, a valuable tool. I'm personally, I'm very excited about it, exploring it. But I also believe that without it, as six months ago, with, we didn't have it um, in our everyday life. And I still believe, yeah, we don't need the, the artificial intelligence to to make our creativity real. And yeah, this is what I like about my approach with the emotional fragrance design, because it's not AI-based. It shows using the the principles and fundamentals of perfumery, combining them with basic human psychology, um, that we could creatively understand, yeah, and, and seek to understand other people's needs. And then through this really nice, beautiful medium of perfumery that we could develop new fragrances perfumes if it's a if it's a perfume or if it's something for a cream or so that's really going to touch someone and by touching them i mean that yeah it speaks to it triggers an emotion or the the perception of emotion that they desire that makes them feel like they're becoming a more whole person and um yeah this is what i think is really beautiful about perfumery is yeah, using our own brain, our own creativity, and really trying to stay open to finding a new way, a new approach to, yeah, to make other people's lives more enjoyable. And I think that's what it's about at the end of the day, isn't it? And I think sometimes the fragrance industry has sort of gone down a a path of turning scent into a consumer product and not something artistic. I think, fortunately, I think because of some of the niche perfumery, there's some of the artistic value of perfumery is still there. But unfortunately, I, I would have to agree with you. A lot of it is about, um, yeah, keeping people on the, the treadmill of buying the next thing. And, you know, when I first started learning perfumery at the same time that you you started, um, it was still more or less possible to to learn and memorize all of the main fine fragrances. <laughs> I gave up a long time ago trying to keep up with it because now it's several thousand new fragrances a year. And it's really, yeah, it's, it's become sort of a machine and yeah, it's that's... sold more on hype. That's so interesting. I'm glad you said that, actually, because sometimes I think, oh, my God, you know, I have sometimes I have students saying, oh, um, you know, this this fragrance and that fragrance. And I'm just like, I have no clue what that even smells like, because back in the day when I was at IFF, every month we had the new fragrance launches in these little vials that would land on my desk to evaluate. And it wasn't that many. I can't even imagine how many they have to evaluate now to kind of uh, and that said, 
when I go do go out and smell things that are out there on the market, a lot of them are, oh, that's really familiar. That's a, a and even the sort of, I don't know, semi pseudo spiritual kind of brands, fragrance brands, often if it's been created by, and I'm probably going to make myself unpopular here, one of like, you know, a top high, you know, main um, mainstream perfumer, um, a lot of the time they do smell very similar to something else. And it feels like often um, that they're just a twist on something, a twist on something. And I know that they were doing that back in the day, and I'm assuming that's still what happens. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. That's going back to what we were discussing earlier with the, the yeah. fragrance briefing. Yeah. People are, a lot of these product manufacturers are afraid to, to be creative. So they take the safe way. They say, yeah. okay, this, this fragrance at the moment is trending. So we want to do something similar to that. We don't want to stray too far away from that even though it might have nothing to do with their brand identity or nothing to do with the, the their consumer. They're just looking, oh, this is a trending fragrance. This is a trending concept. And we're going to somehow make it work for our product. And I think that's one of the reasons there are so many products on the market because most of them are failing. <laughs> so there's... Right. Yeah, because they're not emotionally, they're not designed with an emotional intention. So people buy them once, they might be attracted by a social media account, or some um, really nice marketing or an advertisement. But when they start to live with the, the perfume or the scented product, they quickly, even if it's un even if it's not conscious, they quickly realize this is not my product. And this is the biggest mistake because the, the brand has basically failed in delivering what the customer was expecting from their product. It's re That's really interesting because I do you think that that is responsible for the rise in the sort of trend for people wanting bespoke fragrances or layering products or mix and match or pop-up perfume bars, that kind of thing? Well, with the bespoke perfumery, definitely, because, yeah, everyone wants to be unique. We are all unique. Mm -hmm. So if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity to have a fragrance made for you, then with a talented and understanding perfumer, then yeah, what a wonderful opportunity to express yourself the way you feel most comfortable with, without someone else dictating how you should smell. Um, fragrance layering, yeah, this is this opens up the possibility of play and exploration for the majority of people to where they can start um yeah this process of self-discovery oh i like this and this and how do they how do they actually fit together do they fit together um i think this is uh one way people could like develop their own fragrance um but yeah unfortunately most of the brands are more focused on profits the next trying to create the next fad not yeah. really um yeah not a product that we'll be enjoying for the next decades yeah, this is yeah really it's, missing. it is so interesting and i'm just thinking about um 
yeah, my, my, and taking my kind of evaluator, teacher, perfume, um, educators hat off here and just looking at my own tastes personally, I remember, um, back in the day when I was, um, at IFF and I remember my boss coming in to ask me if I liked a particular fragrance, we were working on something and, um, and I was like, well, what do you mean? What's the, co- you know, what's it for? What's the concept? She's like, no, 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 I'm not. Like, take your evaluator's hat on. Do you personally, Karen, like this perfume? And I, if I said yes, and I found out afterwards that if I'd have said yes, she would have said, okay, that's going to be too polarizing then for this client. Because she knew like, I'm quite fussy about what I wear personally. And I like quite interesting and polarizing perfumes, not a mainstream. And yeah, so she would always say, if Karen likes it, it probably won't sell very well because <laughs> it won't be mainstream <laughs> enough. Yeah, I think that's a funny story. But um, I think as a perfumer and fragrance evaluator, one of the most valuable skills is being able to differentiate your personal taste and to try to put yourself in the place of the the end consumer. Absolutely. Um, Because what I like has no value to my client or to their customer, unless it's the right fit for them. Absolutely. And this is one thing that comes up time and time again at my in-person class. So I do in-person classes here um, at my studio. And sometimes people will, will create something or blend something and they'll say, oh, well, do you like it? Is it, you know, is it right? Is it good? And and my answer to that is always, well, what is the story? What, what is the end purpose? What is the concept? Because it doesn't matter whether I like it personally or not. It's whether it fits your own brief that you're, you've created. So yeah, that's just something for people listening to keep in mind. It's so important, right? Um, so I know that we could probably talk for hours and there are a couple of other things that I just wanted to ask you. So you have, um, so obviously you've got your artwork, um, that you create as well. And you have another little side, um, project. I've, I've got it written down as the creative advisory board, but you said that the name has changed to something else. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Cause I think that's really interesting. That's yeah. I've organized or I founded a group which is now called the Creative Connection. And it's basically an offline group here in Hamburg, Germany, where I work with um, artists, musicians, writers, all sorts of creative people who are, yeah, like ourselves. They they may have a profession, but they want to also so in their free time, explore their creativity. And so I try to, yeah, I organize this group and I try to do my best to be a role model by practicing what I preach. And I try to encourage other people not to be afraid to, yeah, to play out loud, which for me seems to be the biggest barrier for most, um, yeah, creative people. Um, they're afraid, but... Basically, I meet with these people every two, three weeks, and we discuss um, what we're doing, what we want to do, what's holding us back. We also share our successes. And I think this is, um, even though I'm doing this locally here in Hamburg, Germany, 
I think this is very important for all creatives anywhere to find like-minded people, to meet with them as often as they can, and to also even yeah, hopefully collaborate with one another because yeah, combining creativity together is much more powerful than one person trying to do it all themselves. That's brilliant. I was going to ask that whether because you've got artists, musicians, do you ever get any of the you know people with different different um creative sort of modalities get interested in perfumery because of that? Um, actually, at the Creative Connection, um, I don't talk honestly. Normally, when I'm not working, I talk very little about perfumery. Oh wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because. I mean, I love my profession. I'm very fortunate to to be working as a perfumer. Um, I love it. But as I mentioned earlier on in the beginning of our conversation, I identify myself as being more than a perfumer. And I also like the challenge of trying to achieve some sort of level of success in a different creative sphere outside of perfumery. So, um, yeah, so for me... Yeah, it's also the challenge of, yeah, being creative, successfully creative in in other areas like visual art and now sharing my ideas through the the medium of writing a book. Perfect. I think that's amazing. So taking you to wrap up, actually, taking you completely back into the role of of a perfumer, um, Mm -hmm. what I would love to know is, is there a particular type of fragrance that you love to create or are there any favorite materials you have um, to work with? Is there anything that you don't like? I think I could more or less say, honestly, there are no materials that I don't like. I do find some materials to be disturbing or overpowering in their purest form. But um but all materials, when used correctly, have a, have a purpose. So I don't have any strong dislike for any materials. Um, my approach to perfumery is quite uh, minimalistic. Yeah. Um, so when I'm creating a formula, I'm always um, attempting to create it as simple as possible. And okay, throughout my career, starting with my training, the the first. The first year of my training was just smelling training. Mm -hmm. So I think it was about uh, three, four months just smelling natural materials. And then the next eight months or so, just smelling synthetic materials, not mixing anything together. And oh, I forget the exact number, but it was over a thousand materials that I learned to to describe and recall just by their, their scent alone. But over the years, I've... My personal palette, especially for my creative work, because I'm making perfumes for everything, for niche perfume, personal care, and household. But when I think about the the niche perfumery, personal care, I would, I haven't actually counted it, but I would estimate my palette of raw materials is more, my favorite materials, which I'm using regularly, is probably more around 300 materials. So I have a pretty good mastery of these 300 materials. So um, personal preference for myself, I don't wear other people's perfumes. I only wear my own perfumes. So my personal taste, I really like uh, woody fragrances 
And over the years, this woody uh, preference has evolved into like a, a woody aromatic. And I think if I had to say to name three materials I enjoy most, um, one would be, um, yeah, I would say spearmint. Oh, because wow. I like it's, yeah, I like it's uh, the freshness of it. It's very, yeah, lively, sporty, invigorating. It has a certain quality of um, clarity for me. Um, yeah, it's a very optimistic smell. And then my next material would be probably um, Isoe Supra, which many people know because yeah. it's um, it's one of the cornerstone building blocks of modern perfumery. Yeah, it's a very nice material. It's uh, easy to work with in both masculine and feminine perfumes, and it's yeah, it's natural smelling, but it has the the minimalistic aspects of being a synthetic. And I like combining those two materials in my own fragrances, which I wear with uh, a material called pyrolone. I'm not oh, sure if you know this. This is um, one of the quinolines, which is a very earthy, leathery um, note. Um, yeah, this is mainly used in, in leather notes. But for me, this combination with this earthy leatheriness in the ISOE is very grounding comforting and for me is representative of being stable and confident and yeah so if i had to name three materials for my personal taste yeah. i would i enjoy making accords um with these three materials and then building more complex fragrances around them brilliant thank you very much for that and i love that you have a minimalist approach to perfumery because yeah, that is my favorite style as well. I mean, whilst I have, you know, I love some of the old vintage kind of maximalist um, classic fragrances, my own personal preference is, is quite minimalist as well. And I think, so do you create short formulas, would you say? Would you say that yours are, are pretty short formulas? I always try to create the shortest formulas possible. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard it yeah. here, folks, because yeah. I often get people say to me, but I've, you know, I've created this blend and I love it, but it's not a proper perfume because I, you know, perfume, you know, commercial perfumes have hundreds, you know, all of these materials in. And I don't even know if that's true today. I mean, probably decades ago, possibly, but I think there's a lot of short formulas around now, more and more with the linear fragrance types that have become fashionable. I think... Yeah, it's not as extreme as it once was, um, but I still think, like in a typical fine fragrance, you'll find anywhere between 50 and 100 raw materials. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't like name dropping and because I'm not that kind of person, but I had um, many years ago, early on in my training, I had the opportunity to work with Jean-Claude Elena. I was going to ask if you had, because his philosophy yeah. is very minimal yeah, as well. actually... I didn't work with him. He he gave me an assignment. I was in the south of France for several weeks. He met with me on my arrival, and he gave me an assignment to to match a jasmine, which I had zero interest in. I wanted to work on a Narcissa, and he said, no, you have to match this natural jasmine fragrance. 
and um, more or less, we ate lunch almost every day together, but we then never didn't we didn't really speak so much perfumery together. And then came the end of my my time with him, and I had to show him to present to him my jasmine fragrance. It was terrible. It was terrible. And I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> and, and I showed him the formulation, and he started asking, "Why did you use this?" And and one of my answers for several of these questions was, oh, they had found this in the analysis because they had analyzed the natural jasmine absolute. Why did you use this? Oh, they found it in the analysis. And basically he didn't start screaming or shouting, but he was quite stern with me. And I definitely recognized that he wasn't so happy with what I had presented. And he told me probably the most valuable lesson that I learned during my perfumery education don't work with any materials unless it has a purpose. And after that, my perfumery really went up a whole more than a notch. It was uh, before I was working with 70, 60, 70, 80 materials in a formulation. And then I started working just at first with simple accords, one green note, one citrus note, one rosy note, one jasmine note, one lily of the valley note, one woody note, one musky note. And I started putting together accords where I really had complete master mastery over them. And yeah, they weren't only minimalistic, but there was a certain clarity and harmony in these simpler accords. And okay, with time, I developed the skill to, to build a more complexity. But normally when I create a, a new fine fragrance, I'm, I'm really giving my best to create uh, with around 30 materials. Um, more often or not, I end up around 40, but um, I'm really trying to create the shortest formula as possible. I love that. <laughs> I love short formula fragrances. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I could, obviously, we need to round it up um, for, for the purposes of the podcast, but I'm sure we will be talking again. And I will put all of your details where people can find. If there's one place that you would like people to go to find you, where would that be? Would that be your LinkedIn profile or would that be your website, your newsletter? Um, actually, I would say my new website, emotionalfragrancedesign.com, because uh, I would assume that most of your listeners would like to learn more about perfumery. And Absolutely. I would love and I would love to share um my thoughts about emotional fragrance design with them. And as I mentioned, I'm not holding anything back and I'm going to be showing people, um, yeah, my rough drafts, what I'm thinking, how I'm creating. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I'd be very grateful if people would uh, follow me throughout this, this adventure or journey, because I think uh, we could learn more and uh, achieve more by sharing this process. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been so lovely to talk to you. And I'm on your newsletter list already. I've read your first couple of newsletters. So uh, oh, I you. will post all of the links in the show notes. And I'm sure everyone will be um, jumping on that newsletter link as well and following the process. And good luck with the, uh, the, the create the writing process of the book. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and thank um, you, Karen. We'll we'll be uh, we'll be on you know on the edge of our seats waiting for for each each episode. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Karen. I look so, forward so to So great to talk you. to you. Thanks so much, Scott Morishan. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye. Bye.